We're going to be in Mark chapter 3, beginning at verse 31, as we continue our series from the Gospel of Mark. Um, if, you have a, if you need a Bible, we still have a few. Uh, I bet our ushers would be glad to hand out a Bible if they could just go over there and find the Bibles. And if you need a Bible, just slip up your hand. Uh, if you want to find Mark chapter 3, verse 31, it's on page 696. If you grabbed one of the pew, or excuse me, bridge Bibles, there are two different kinds, and the other is 1004. In her book, Amazing Grace, Kathleen Norris tells about visiting an older man named Arlo who was dying of terminal cancer. Arlo told Norris about his grandfather, who was a sincere Christian. When Arlo got married as a young man, his grandfather had given Arlo and his uh, new wife a brand new leather-bound Bible with their uh, names printed in gold uh, as a wedding gift. Um, Arlo left the Bible in the box and he never opened it. Months later, grandfather visited and asked, had he opened the gift yet? And uh, how he liked it. Um, grandfather returned on several occasions and asked again about how they liked uh, the gift and how they liked the Bible. Arlo was frustrated with his grandfather because Arlo's wife had written a very nice thank you about the gift. And not only that, they had told Grandfather in person, thank you for the gift. Years later, Arlo was curious. So he decided to go into the closet and get the box and open it up and have a look at the Bible that Grandfather had given them years ago. When he got to the book of Genesis chapter 1, there was a $20 bill. And he discovered there was one in the book of Exodus, too, on chapter 1. And there was 66 $20 bills in the Bible. And that added up to $1,320. Um, it was curiosity that motivated Arlo to discovery. His grandfather thought he's never going to find it. Now, this is a story about families and hearts. As you heard that story, are you more interested in the $1,320 or are you more interested in what's in the Bible? And some of you will probably try to land on both, which may be a little divided. Today we're going to hear... Uh, a passage about families and about hearts. Not a very creative title, but that's what the passage is about. So let's look at uh, chapter 3, verse 31, and we're going to begin with family priorities. Family priorities. And we have the biological family of Jesus in verses 31 and 32. And uh, look at the text, verse 31. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. So this is Jesus' mother, Mary, and his brothers. And we haven't met them yet. And they're looking for him. Uh, 
they think that Jesus needs help. They think Jesus has gotten himself into predicament that he doesn't know how to get out of. And they are there to rescue him from consequences that he doesn't understand. Now, let's go back and remember uh, last week, Mark chapter 3, verse 21. Do you remember this? When his family heard about this, Jesus' family, they went to take charge of him for they thought he's out of his mind. So his family thought, Jesus is kind of maybe going off the reservation here a little bit. Um, he's, um, he's not in his right mind. He's saying things about the kingdom of God. Uh, he's got all these people following him. And uh, he's just, he's not acting normal. He's, he's uh, way overdoing it. Um, and that he, he's going without eating. And they also know that he has created some opposition that have come from Jerusalem. And they're looking for a, an opportunity to arrest him. And that's not a secret. Mark 6 identifies the, uh, some of the family members of Jesus. Mark chapter 6. Jesus left there uh, and went to his hometown. What's his hometown? Remember the map? You just have to see if you can remember the map. It's Nazareth. That's his hometown. And... Um, When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. That was his custom. And many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. Next slide. What's this wisdom that has been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? This is Jesus' hometown. They know him. They know the family. Isn't this the carpenter? This is one of the reasons we, we think Jesus was a carpenter and Joseph, his father, was a carpenter. His son took on the uh, father's uh, a job. Uh, and um, the, the people in the audience, they know Jesus. Isn't this a carpenter? Yeah. Isn't this Mary's son? Yeah. Isn't this the brother of James? Sure it is. And Joseph and Judas and Simon, aren't, aren't his sisters here with, with us? And they took offense at him. So um, his brother James, guess what? is not a follower of Christ. He will become a follower of Christ at the resurrection of Jesus when he sees Jesus raised from the dead. He will become uh, an awesome follower and leader in the church, and he will write the book of James. There's another brother here, and his name is Judas, and he also goes by Jude. And he will become a follower of Christ after the resurrection. And he will write the book of Jude, that little book, right before the book of Revelation. Um, These uh, are brothers of Jesus. These are biological kids of Mary and Joseph. Remember, Jesus has that unique situation where Mary is the mother and and Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so in a sense... James, Joseph, and Judas, and Simon are half-brothers. But this is the family of Jesus. We don't know the names of the sisters in this passage. So uh, Jesus' family have come to rescue him from the trouble he's gotten himself into. And Jesus will surprise his audience with this response. Look at verses 33 and 33 through 35. And we'll look at the spiritual family. Here's the question, verse 33. Who are my uh, mother and my brothers? It seems like a dumb question because, you know, they're in the house. And they are in Capernaum. Remember the map. North shore of the Sea of Galilee. 
And they have gone into a house. We saw that last week. And outside is a crowd. And Jesus' mother and brothers are outside. So who are my mother and brothers? Verse 34, he answers, Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him, and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. And he looked at those people right in the room with him. You're my family. You are my mother and my brothers. Verse 35, Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and my mother. Jesus makes a very profound statement about family. Jesus is talking about kingdom priorities. Those who are obedient take priority over blood relatives. God is more concerned about obedience than family ties. So, let's ask that question. Is it like Jesus against families? Because at times it can almost sound like that. No, he's, he's very much supportive of families. He's very much uh, supportive of children honoring their father and their mother. He's very much in support of husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. You probably can't outdo Jesus with love. And uh, he's very much about children obeying their parents and about wives respecting their husbands and about older women teaching younger women to love their husbands and uh, parents to provide for their children and for parents to train up their children in a way that honors God. And here's the deal. Here's the point. Jesus is about obedience It's a a crucial kingdom value that he wants to make. Um, This is really important for parents. Um, It's really important for all of us, but think about this, parents. What do you want for your kids? Would you rather have your kids be a C student and totally love Jesus or an A student and be a nominal Christian? We sometimes in America get this idea that what we want is we want our kids to grow up and get good grades and uh, be good at what they do, whether it's sports or some kind of club or music. We want, we want our kids to uh, get into a good college and get a good job and find a nice wife or a nice husband and get a nice home and have nice kids and we'll be happy. Jesus said, that's not it. It's about people who follow Jesus. It's about people who get obedience. Uh, That's what's going to matter in God's kingdom. Um, In Luke chapter 14, verse 25 and 26, uh, Jesus kind of makes this point even stronger Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be a disciple. It sounds harsh, doesn't it? Jesus was radical, and he said things to get people's attention. Um, And this maybe has your attention. Uh, And we already know what Jesus thinks about family. It's extreme. I don't think you could love your children or your uh, parents 
or your mate enough, okay? But, Jesus is saying, the word hate, for us, is just emotionally laden. In our culture, hate is emotional. It's not an emotional concept in the Old Testament when this word was used. And this is a Hebraism from the Old Testament. It's a word of comparison. And so when, he, when he's saying, when it comes to your family, Jesus needs to be the priority. You can love your family as much as possible and use God's love and ask him to help you love your family. But you need to put Jesus ahead of your family. That's what he's saying. That's what he's asking. That's a kingdom value. That's a kingdom priority. So, um, those are family priorities. Now we're going to go to heart priorities, chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. We, we move from families to the heart. And here's the situation in verses 1 and 2. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. Remember, he's at Capernaum. It's a little fishing town on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. That's the lake. You just have to imagine the map because people are getting tired of the map. And so you just remember the map. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat. Remember the boat? They had set out the boat earlier in chapter 3, I think, in verse 21. Jesus had ordered the boat to be made ready because the crowds were pushing him toward the lake. Verse 2, he taught them many things by parables and in his teaching. So Jesus got into the boat and sat in it on the lake while the people were along the shore at the water's edge. So, uh, let's, hey, we got a picture of the boat. No map, but we got the boat. There we go. So this would be the Sea of Galilee, and that could be the kind of boat that Jesus sat in. Rabbis sat to teach, and the people usually stood up to listen. I like that. And... But pushed out just a few feet from the shore, created a perfect amphitheater to teach. And they've tested this acoustically, and Jesus would have been able to um, be heard by a very large group of people without a sound system. We think we've got to have a sound system, but this was like an ideal uh, situation acoustically. So he taught them in parables. What's a parable? You remember what a parable is? Uh, it's an everyday situation used to explain a spiritual reality. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. That's a great one. It's a concrete reality used to teach abstract truth. So this was a teaching device that Jesus used. And he's going to switch right here. He's told a couple of simple stories that are parables but now he's going to switch to a ministry of teaching parables. And he's going to be very intentional about it. And he's going to start with the parable of all parables, the parable of the sower, the parable of the farmer. And it's sometimes called the parable of the soils. Verses 3 through 9. Um, this, parable, this parable is about the influence of the seed on the soil. Uh, there's going to be a sower, and the sower is constant. There's going to be uh, the seed, and the seed is going to be constant, and there are going to be four different types of soil. That's the part that's not constant. So we look at verses 3 and 4, the hard-packed soil. 
Look at verse 3. Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Pretty simple, pretty common picture for the first century. Fields typically had walking paths around them so that, you know, this is how you go around the field without walking over it. And those became uh, very hard packed, like a little road, road, roadside soil. And uh, it could become like, almost like concrete. It, it could be so hard when it was really dry. And sometimes when the fields were large, they, they made a path right through the middle and um, sort of divided up the field. And that was where ground was hard packed. The result was the birds came and ate it up. Uh, the, the seed that was sown was exposed to the elements. The, the soil was hard packed in certain areas, and it just sat on top. And after a while, the birds would find it, and they would just eat it up. Pretty simple. Uh, people in the first century had seen that on many occasions. The rocky soils is in verses 5 and 6. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly. Because the soil was shallow. Soil in the land of Israel um, sometimes had sort of sheets of limestone right below the soil. So, for example, imagine um, a sheet of limestone four by six feet, roughly, maybe an odd shape, and um, it's only two inches deep. It's just sitting there flat and it's covered with soil two inches deep. I had one of those in my uh, yard in Texas. Didn't know why my grass wouldn't grow, and I kept planting grass over this, and it kept coming up, and then it kept dying out. And I dug it up one day, and there was this large sheet of limestone. And uh, that was rocky soil. The seed could germinate and uh, break through the surface, but it wouldn't last long because the soil was so shallow. Verse 6, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Um, the new plants couldn't stand the scorching, scorching sun. So they withered. The result, the seed sprang up quickly and was scorched. Not a healthy option for growth. Verse 7, the thorny soil. Stay with me. Look at your text. Other seed fell among the thorns which grew up and choked the plants. So they did not bear grain. Before uh, planting, as, um, a field would be sort of scraped with a kind of a hoe or tool of some kind, and they kind of use the kind of a rake to kind of scratch the surface a little bit. Um, it wasn't like heavy cultivation. But um, under the surface of the soil that was scraped, and they kind of removed last year's debris, under the surface there could be thistles or, or roots of... of uh, Thorn bushes, something you couldn't see after the, the uh, land had been cleared, but it was just beneath the surface. And so the seed was sown, and uh, it, it came up, but um, there were thorns there also. And the thorns came up faster and began to choke out, began to take up space, began to um, take up light and take up moisture. And they didn't bear grain. The result, they, they, the seed grew up and choked and then we have the good soil. You've all been waiting for the good soil. Verse 8, still other seed fell on the good soil. It came up, grew, and produ- 
produced a crop, some multiplying some uh, 30, some 60, and some 100 times. Good soil was a great environment for growth. The seed grew, and it multiplied 30 times, 60 times, 100 times. It's been said that kind of normal growth that they might expect for a whole field would be 10 times. Plant a seed, result you get, you hope to get 10 times that when you're all done at the end of the year. Um, so the result, the seed grew, multiplied 30, 60, and 100 times. This was a very good result. This was what the farmer wanted to accomplish. And then Jesus gives a challenge in verse 9. He who has ears, let him hear. He who has ears. This was a common thing Jesus used in his teaching. And it wasn't just a roll call for counting body parts. This was about hearing God's truth. He who has ears. So you go around the room, how many of you got ears? You know, Everybody raises their hand. This is about hearing God's truth. Do you hear? It was not about having sound vibrations on the eardrum. It was to hear for the Jewish audience in the first century. It was to hear. It was to understand. I get it. Okay, now I do it. That's what it means to hear. Hear, understand, apply to your life. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel. And the Israelites understood. It means pay attention and do this and believe this and live this. It wasn't just a nice thing to say to, to intellectually assent to. It was about doing. Hearing the word was the same as obeying the word. Jesus told this parable of parables. Because understanding this parable will lead to understanding of the other parables. To hear, to understand, and apply. This will be the key. Verse 10, and the questions come. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. Now, you know, if you were one of the twelve disciples and you were with Jesus and he just told the parable of the soils, I don't know how many times you've heard that parable. A lot of you could just tell it as fast as I could tell it. You may know it as well or better than I know it. But the, the disciples heard this for the first time. What do you think their response was? You know, I can sort of imagine some of them sort of act like they know what it's all about. And sort of like, I can see you don't get it kind of thing. And they may have just been totally dumbfounded like everybody. But they did not understand what he just said. They had no clue what this parable was about. Verse 11, he told them the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, you the disciples. What is the secret of the kingdom of God? Simply, the secret is the kingdom of God has come near and the king, the Messiah, is present. And he is influencing, he's, it's the incarnation, God in the flesh is the secret. And he is influencing the environment by his teaching and miracles, and the kingdom of God is expanding. It's not what they expected. They expected a military leader to come in on a white horse and kill the enemies. That was their hope. 
This is not the military leader. This is the kingdom of God advancing one life at a time. So he told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside. You are in the inside. You're insiders. You're in the group, but you're also in the house. And those outside the house right now, they don't understand. So that, verse 12, they may ever, so that they be ever seeing, but never perceiving, and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, I might turn and be forgiven. And Jesus is quoting Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. From what Jesus said, he gives three reasons why, right here, why he speaks in parables. One, he gives a, one reason is he speaks to reveal truth to the interested and the curious. He wants people to understand. He's looking for people who are interested and curious. A second reason he speaks in parables, which is hard for us to understand, it was to conceal truth from the disinterested and self-focus. Jesus spoke in words that were veiled in parables. They were covered up. There were secrets. And if you want to find the answers, you're going to have to do what the disciples do. They're curious and they ask questions and you have to get close enough to ask questions. One of the purposes was to conceal truth. The third purpose is to fulfill prophecy because it's just happened. Isaiah 6, 9, and 10 has just been fulfilled as Jesus began his ministry of um, speaking in parables. So curiosity and search lead to discovery of truth. Disinterest and self-focus lead to an attitude of spiritual callousness toward truth. Now we're going to go for the interpretation Verses 13 through 20, the interpretation of the parable. And verse 13 is the need is understanding. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The answer is no, they don't have a clue. They don't get the parable at all. How will they understand? They're going to understand by approaching Jesus, by being curious, by wanting to know more, by searching for the truth. It will lead to discovery. Verse 14, the seed is identified as the word of God. The farmer sows the word. Who's the farmer? There's no answer. There's no explicit reference to who the farmer is. It's implied it's Jesus. Jesus is the one sowing the seed, the word of God. He's proclaiming the word of God to the people like the farmer sowing the seed. And it's going to apply to the disciples. One day they're going to do the very same thing. They're going to sow the word of God and they're going to get different responses. And it's going to apply to the church later. And the church is going to be proclaiming the word of God and there are going to be various responses to the word of God. The word is the constant. Number three, the hard-packed soil is the calloused heart, verse 15. The hard-packed soil is the calloused heart. Some people are like the seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word 
that was sown in them. So like the birds came, artifact soil, the seed's sitting there. Nothing's happening to it. It's not penetrating the soil. And so birds take it. In this case, Satan and his demons remove the truth. Um, some people in the audience on that day were like the hard-packed soil. They were not curious. They were judgmental of Jesus. In fact, a group of them had come up from Jerusalem to see what they might observe so that Jesus could be arrested. They were hard-packed soil. They were spiritually callous towards spiritual things. They were not interested in learning more about Jesus. So this would include some of the scribes and the Pharisees seeking to catch him in a crime against Israel. Remember Mark 3.29? We looked at this last week. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of eternal sin. We spent some time on that last week. See, there was a group of people in the audience who had witnessed Jesus speak the truth, perform miracles, display the kingdom of God, and they wanted to arrest him. And Jesus warns them that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. If you continue to reject, if your heart is callous, if you continue and continue, it w- you'll reach a point of no forgiveness. The rocky soil is a shallow heart in verses 16 and 17. Others like the seed sown on the rocky places hear the word and once receive it with joy. This is kind of an emotional response. They, they go on how they feel. They, they operate, they make a decision about their circumstances and about Jesus doing something good and making them happy. And it's an emotional response. It's not based on solid truth. It's based on their feelings and their circumstances. Their emotions are reflecting their circumstances. Verse 17, but since they have no re- root... They last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Now, let me give you an example of this to encourage you. Let me just say one thing here right off the bat. Please don't use the parable of the soils to look for the doctrine of salvation. It's a little bit dangerous because it can lead you in different directions. Jesus is not talking about being saved. He's talking about how people respond to the word of God. Now, Here's why this is encouraging. Who is Peter, leader of the 12, follower of Christ? Jesus said, Peter, on you, I'm going to build a church. No, he says, Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Peter, you're going to be the leader of the group. And so... Peter, as you know, is the foot-in-mouth disciple, and he sometimes says things that he regrets, and he sometimes feels something, and he speaks up, and it's out of turn. And then after three years with Jesus, on the night Jesus was betrayed, he's standing around the fire, and, he sa- and somebody comes up to him and says, you were with Jesus, weren't you? And he said, no, not me. And he denied Jesus three times. That was an emotional response. And Jesus said here... Uh, Since they have no root, they last only for a short time. When trouble or persecution comes, 
because G- Peter had trouble that night. And he fell away. He failed. And I guess I hope that encourages you because even a guy like Peter at times did that emotional thing. And he, even Peter at times had a shallow heart. Uh, number five, th- a thorny soil, the divided heart, verses 18 and 19. Still others, uh, like seed sown among the thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things come in and choke the word and make it unfruitful. This is a divided heart. It describes people with good intentions. I'm guessing there are a lot of people in the room that have good intentions. But they have too many priorities or they have wrong priorities. Here's what Jesus is asking. Jesus be first. Everything else has to follow that. Um, This group doesn't have time for understanding God's word and growing. Their commitments center on things like family first or financial needs first or their security first um, and and Jesus' kingdom second or third or fourth or fifth. It's a divided heart. And Jesus said you can't uh, serve two masters. I feel so much like the American church is right here, right here with a divided heart. Um, lastly, the good soil, the receptive heart, verse 20. Others like the seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, produce a crop, some 30, some 60, and 100 times what was sown. When this person hears the word, they want to embrace it. They want, to, they want that, the word of God to become a part of their lives. They want to hear more. They want to understand more. They want to apply more and more and more receptive heart. Jesus had this in mind in John 15, verse 4. Jesus said to his disciples, this was his last night on earth. He said, remain in me. I also uh, remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. Remember, receptive heart bears fruit 30 times, 60 times, or 100 times. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Jesus is saying there must be a really close relationship between him and us individually. And when we do, we can bear much fruit. Um, you can't bear fruit unless you remain in him or stay close to him, close in your walk. John fifteen five. one of the well-known passages in John, I am the vine, you are the branches. Uh, the branches get their life from the vine. They have to stay connected. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. That's the goal. 30 times, 60 times, 100 times, much fruit. Growth in character. Becoming more like Christ. Love, joy, peace, patience. Reaching more people. More fruit. You will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do zero. It's possible to be a Christian and not bear any fruit. That's sad. Jesus' desire for receptive hearts. Um, So here's a little recap. 
There's the calloused heart, doesn't really absorb God's word. The shallow heart that kind of dabbles in God's word. The divided heart that has lots of priorities. And the receptive heart that embraces God's word. Which best describes you in the last six months? Which best describes you in the last month or the last week? Receptive heart, divided heart, shallow heart, or how about the callous heart? Um, I think Jesus gave parables like this. See, it's a simple story. But it wasn't just meant for first graders or second graders. It was meant for life. It is the word of God. It is living and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. And it's meant for us to come back and to evaluate and to think and reflect about our lives. Uh, I think any person, a couple of observations here. I've already said the parable is not teaching the doctrine of salvation. Uh, second one, any, any person at any point can be the good soil and have a receptive heart. Wherever you are right now, you can always become the receptive heart. Um, this parable was designed to cause you to think and reflect. We, we can drift away from the scriptures. We can drift away from a close walk with Jesus. And this parable reminds us to move back to remain in Christ, to come back to Christ and stay close to him. This parable also tells us as a church that that not everybody who hears the word is going to appreciate it. There are going to be various responses. Some people are just going to be callous about spiritual things. Some people are going to be really shallow, shallow. We might say flaky. Some people are going to have divided hearts, good intentions, but they're just caught up in their life and they don't know what to do about it. Um, this parable raises the value of curiosity and discovery. You know, would you, would you like to find $1,320 in your Bible? Or would you like to find the truth in the Bible? Um, and this parable does not settle for laziness or self-absorption. This is the parable that unlocks all the parables. It's about your heart. Let's stand and pray. Father, thank you for the reminder from the word of God this morning and the words of Jesus about how we hear your word. God, I pray that um, you will develop a curiosity in our lives that will last for a lifetime that can be renewed over and over to come to the scriptures to discover what you have to say to us. Not only just a heart to to know and be smarter, but to know and be more obedient. I thank you that you have designed the family and that you have designed it to work amazingly well. And that your love flows through the family to the family. Help us, Father, to appreciate the family. To follow your design and your instructions about the family and your word. But may we have the priority that it's 
Jesus first and his kingdom first. And our other priorities will fall into place. For Jesus' sake, amen.